I'm Elizabeth Rushing, and this is Humanity in War, an ICRC podcast on all things humanitarian law and policy. Persons with disabilities constitute approximately 15% of the global population, a figure that only rises during crises. Armed conflicts, in particular, generate new disabilities, exacerbate the existing barriers faced by persons with disabilities, and expose the whole community to greater harm. Yet, the experiences of persons with disabilities in armed conflict and the effects of armed conflict on this population are sorely understudied. In addition, discussions of the effects of armed conflicts on persons with disabilities have too often failed to include the voices and perspectives of that community. One of the latest editions of the International Review of the Red Cross aimed to reshape the landscape, comprising 30 thought-provoking contributions, including many authored by persons with disabilities. Today, in this spirit, I am honored to be sitting down with three inspiring experts and activists to take stock of the protections and lack thereof for persons with disabilities in armed conflicts and reflect on how to move the legal and policy debates forward in the next few years. So, Nawaf, I would like to begin with you. If I may, by way of a brief introduction for those who do not know Nawaf, Nawaf Kabara is the president of the National Association for the Rights of Persons with Disabilities in Lebanon and the president of the Arab Organization of Persons with Disabilities. He is also a member of the International Disability Alliance Executive Committee and of Disabled People's International Executive Committee. Thank you so much for joining us today, Nawaf. Thank you very much. Nawaf, could you please help me set the scene of our conversation today? You recently spoke during the 16th session of the Conference of State Parties to the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, where you are quoted as saying, quote, persons with disabilities do not come at the end. We are not a checkbox to be ticked. We must be included at the beginning, unquote. Could you tell me what experience was this quote referring to and what is the reality of persons with disabilities caught up in armed conflict? Thank you very much, Liz. Let me first start with another quotation I did say in the opening session of the SOSP. I said to them that disability is not a statistic. It's not 4%, it's not 16%. It is 100%. It's a progressive phenomenon. Every one of us, in his or every cycle of our life, has to deal with certain type of disability. So whatever we're doing now is not for a certain percentage of the population. It's not for a community. It's for every one of us. Because every one of us will be in need of it one day or another in his everyday life cycle. So that's number one. Number two, based on that, how would we know what are the issues of concerns for persons with disability. Here you have to go and talk to the people with chronic disability. People that have the experience, they have lived the situation, and they don't know exactly what is needed to be done. In this regard, it's not a question of for an expert to come and tell us how to live. It's a question of us telling them how do we feel in order to be able to live with dignity and inclusive in society. What are the barriers? What kind of problems and how do we do to solve them? And what are our demands? 
to make life acceptable and honorable for persons with disabilities. So this is the basic behind what I said in New York, that is not only just to come to say yes, give a speech. This is not the issue. The issue is a total consultation all the way along on every aspect of policies, of legislation, and programs and strategies and projects of implementation. Without this, we come out with implementation that is far from being perfect. Now, let me go to the third aspect of your question. It is disabilities that push you in a position that you understand what conflict does to people, that you have lived the experience of conflicts, that you are the result of conflicts. You either die or you come out with a disability to live with it all your life. And in this situation, it is a conflict that comes out, create all these troubles and all these problems. I also said in the opening session that if we see how much money had been spent the last two years on wars and conflicts, if this money was spent on development and the implementation of the SDG or dealing with the climate change, imagine where the world would be now. That's why disability movement played a major role against the war and pushed for peace and highlighted the question of human rights. That's why you have seen many experiences, including mine, my, in my country, a real fight for personal disability against continuous of violence, continuous of wars, and continuous of conflicts. And we can talk about it later if you like. Yes, I would like to talk about that, Nawaf, because everything you're saying and, and what's resonating with me is don't tell us how to live, listen to how we feel, and calling for a, a genuine and a comprehensive consultation process from start to finish and highlighting the consequences of not doing so in a very stark way. And this is all wisdom that is grounded in a, a reality. So you you are now globally recognized since leading the march against the war in Lebanon by persons with disabilities in 1987. Could you please tell us a little bit about that experience and how it shaped your own path? I don't know how much time I have because I can go along along talking about it. But let me start by saying the idea started by a student in university who in 1984 called for a meeting of civil society against the war in Lebanon. And the idea was that everyone will join in a place cross line between two fighting militias. One day before the event, the both militias on both sides started to bombard the place of the meeting. That was a clear indication of how much the warriors were bothered with such kind of civil movement. We did not give up. It just happened that at that time, in 1984, I saw Gandhi's film. And in this film, Gandhi marched a long way to produce salt against the British Empire. And I had the idea, why not having Lebanese people moving from north to south to show real civil resistance to the continuation of the war? And then, because of the logistical problem with such kind of a proposal, we decided why not have the person with ability as symbols of, of the war to march, and that's how it started. We started preparation in 1984. In 1985, we decided to do a, some sort of a, a small march in preparation for the big one, and while we were in the street of Beirut, clashes erupted between two militias. We were in the middle when the fighting started, and I will never forget these moments of my life. And then in 1987, we were able to gather in the north of Lebanon, in the city of Halba, 
and we marched for three days from north to south against the war. We started 100. We reached the south with around 5,000 people with us and waiting for us. We were stopped in every village, in every town, in every city. And after this, other groups in the civil society got the inspiration and they got the power and the courage to go down, demonstrate. And on the 9th of November of the same year, there was 300,000 people in Beirut saying no to the war. And that was the beginning of the end of the war that was put an end in 1989. The most important of it, that person with disability came out as a very active uh, social force capable of playing a major role at the national level. And this is, it was a turning point on how society saw disability. Instead of saying to them, you have to go to institution for the first time society to be in front of a challenge of a group that telling them we are much more active and much more productive and capable than you are. And they had to deal with that situation and that reality. Thank you, Noah, for sharing the intricate, the planning, the very high risks and the very high impact of that work that you did and that continue to do today. Thank you very much for sharing that. Before I go back to you, Nawaf, I'd like to turn to Veronica now. Veronica Ngumndi is the Chief Executive Officer for the Community Association for Vulnerable Persons, or CAVP, in the Santa subdivision in the northwest region of Cameroon. She has a long history of being active in local, national, and international humanitarian and community work. In her work, she focuses on the rights of women and girls with disabilities, women and girls with HIV and AIDS, including teen and single mothers. And she is passionate about promoting sexual and reproductive health rights, education and empowerment, providing information and communication technology and positive use of the Internet to avoid online and social media violence towards women and girls. Veronica, it is a pleasure to be speaking with you today. How are you? Thank you, Lizzie, for giving me this opportunity. Thank you, Veronica. And I'd like to start, if I may, with the problem. Uh, based on your experience, what are the main obstacles to humanitarian assistance for girls and women with disabilities? The main obstacles that women and girls with disabilities face is that they are not consulted or don't conduct needs assessment to clearly identify their needs and prioritize them during humanitarian interventions. Humanitarian assistance policies are very rigid. They are too rigid. They fail to take into consideration the diversity of disability based on type and degree. Distribution sites are inaccessible and specific measures are not put in place to consider the needs of persons with disabilities. Like for example, persons with disabilities can those that manage to reach distribution sites face challenges with accessibilities. They allow them to queue up like every other person. They don't take into consideration the fact that what they have received would have challenges transporting it back to their homes. Then those that have no means to leave their homes because of inaccessibilities, they don't take into consideration that they can reach them at home. But I, as a disability leader, I am very flexible. I look into those details and those specific needs and I can receive or I take assistance to those 
that cannot leave their homes i take it to them in their homes then i can take some pictures for verification or i can do an, an interview or a small video for for verification the available assistance do not meet the most in need there are some women and girls with disability that are locked up in far off communities and they have not been displaced assistance is so concentrated in the city where it is the host communities for most idps so those that are in need and are in hard to reach areas assistance has not reached them organizations of persons with disabilities or dpos or disabled people's organizations are not subcontracted nor given the opportunities to take lead in their own intervention thereby reducing all persons with disabilities to be at the receiving end they are not given the opportunities to be partners Meanwhile, if we take lead in our own intervention as persons with disabilities, we will clearly understand the specific needs. We will go through, we will be very flexible because we understand the degree, the, the diversity of disability based on degree and type. Thank you, Veronica, for outlining that. And I'm definitely hearing a common trend already in this conversation, which is which you've just echoed what Nawaf said is the severe lack of consultation being told needs instead of listening to what they are. I'm starting to hear, you know, the lack of flexibility and adaptation in the humanitarian sector as well. You're also starting to touch upon some of the, that I think it's maybe a workaround of what you and your organization have been able to do despite these challenges. It seems you've been You've had the strength and clarity to seek out solutions. So could you describe some of the empowerment opportunities you've come across in your work? And I won't ask for a formula for success, but what has worked in your experience? Yeah, the, the empowerment opportunities I have and I have come across in my work is belonging to networks. I am a member of the Care Women's Actions for Better Advocacy. That is a acronym WABA I'm in that uh, network. And it gives me the role to be a gender and disability inclusive development advocate in my community in this humanitarian context and report back to care monthly. So while in that network and be having the role that I have to play and being conscious that I have to report to care, I am very conscious to be disability specific and intentionally identify the, the needs of women and girls with disability, advocate for them to access humanitarian assistance, which is also giving my organization some capacities and giving my work visibility. My organization is also part of the GBV subcluster of UNFPA in the Northwest region of Cameroon and it, they also give us access to good opportunities. I have been assigned by the UNHCR in 2022 to identify and submit names of women and girls with disabilities that will benefit from direct cash assistance, and a good number of them were supported. So several times over the years since the crisis, UNFPA has provided us with dignity kits specifically targeting women and girls with disabilities. We have been partners with the Martin Luther King Foundation in Cameroon in a recent project that we provided eight women with startup microgrants, but 
all this is not enough is with a seed grant can provide only eight women the opportunity to have micro grants then it's not enough because it will not reach many i would say disability is very diversified and progresses over time due to age and sometimes health situations so i don't think there is any specific formula to meet the needs of persons with disability and women with disability but if they apply flexibility and the concept of universal design for interventions and take to consideration that policies of humanitarian interventions can be flexible bring in persons with disability from the identification to monitoring and evaluation in the project cycle it will work well what has worked for us is advocacy with service providers and humanitarian actors it has enabled them to understand that when they are doing humanitarian interventions there are specific needs that persons with disability have that are not just generalized as they always do during through our advocacy women with disabilities have had access to menstrual hygiene and dignity kit they have had access to food and non-food items assistance and some of them have had access to justice but the challenges are still enormous so access to justice is expensive it's slow thank you veronica for your work and and that's exactly what we are doing today as well with you is advocating to humanitarian actors precisely i'm sure that's a large part of our audience so i'm hearing we need more more consultation more flexibility and it's excellent the work that you do with networks because we do know that there's strength in numbers so thank you very much for that and turning to you now michael michael nga muenba is the disability inclusion advisor here at the icrc's headquarters in geneva he has over 15 years experience in disability inclusion having worked with local and international disability inclusion organizations in Kenya prior to joining the ICRC in June of 2020. Michael it's wonderful to have you here today. How are you doing? I am doing fine. Thank you, Lizzie. It's a pleasure to have you. And to start with, I I'd like to actually talk a little bit about your experience before joining the ICRC. Does the situation that Nawaf and Veronica laid out for us resonate for you with your own work and what you experienced during your time with local disability inclusion organizations in Kenya? Thank you. Uh before joining the IRCRC in June 2020, I worked with uh, local and international organizations of uh, disabilities in Kenya. And what Nawaf uh, has shared together with Veronica uh, resonates with my uh experiences uh, both as a person with a disability in situations of armed conflict as well as a humanitarian uh, worker now first of all i would like to agree with nawaf that persons with disabilities in situations of conflict are just not a statistic but a reality of the situation for me and i've been reflecting this even for a very long time is that not including persons with disabilities in uh, conflict or when we are addressing situations of conflict means that we are potentially leaving out about a third of the population affected by conflict of course which goes against the principle of humanity it goes against the principle of uh, impartiality as defines um, the conflict and of course Uh, other situations of uh, of violence 
Now, the situations that Veronica and Nawaf have presented are very close to my experience, and therefore to my heart, actually because not just generalizing, I have experienced them either as a person or in my work. They have cited physical accessibility challenges of persons with disabilities. And this is something that is actually very common, especially in situations of conflict, because what happens in situations of conflict is that infrastructure is destabilized, all the same are destroyed. Now, at times we think about infrastructure just as infrastructure, but on the other side, we can actually think about how an impairment becomes an accessibility challenge during conflict. I'll give my own example, whereby once I found myself in a situation of a bit of conflict when we had some internal skirmishes, and therefore the policemen were chasing us all over, trying to contain the situation. And myself being a person with visual impairment uh, due to albinism, of course, just like the other population, I was forced to run about. Because of that, there were a bit of trenches where we were running. And of course, my visual uh, acuity uh, being restrained as well as my visual field, I could not see these trenches. And of course, I remember I stumbled several times uh, before, of course, the police getting hold of me and beating me thoroughly. So I got serious injuries at that time and I was hospitalized uh, quite a few weeks. So this means, of course, that when persons with disabilities are fleeing conflict or fleeing attacks, they are susceptible to uh, to injuries. That's another way of looking at physical, I mean, physical accessibility barriers. Now, when I was working in Kenya at one point, we had, we also had in an area that we were intervening uh, with some of the local organizations for persons with disabilities. We had a situation whereby one of the families that uh, one of the children was a lady uh, with an intellectual impairment was actually tied to some sort of uh, structure to restrain her. Mm. So this method of constraining persons with intellectual impairments, especially in the global south, is a very, very common, uh, very common issue. And of course, it goes against all the laws of humanity. It's not right. So, of course, when the bandits came attacking, uh, of course, everybody flew. And each and every other person, of course, I mean, this lady who was tied inside the hut somewhere was not able to seek refuge. Of course, when the bandits came, they made some sexual violence uh, on her. I mean, these are just two of the examples that I can give, and this is the reality. So when we say that persons with disabilities are just not a statistic in situations of conflict, but it's a reality that should be considered by each and everybody. And therefore, that, of course, means that persons with disabilities in situations of conflict face lots of challenges, accessibility challenges, information, lack of information or improper information. Some we have had Nawaf and Veronica talking about empowerment of organizations of persons with disabilities, persons with disabilities themselves. Most people, of course, have these attitudes against persons with disabilities that, for example, we cannot be able to make our own decisions because, uh, I mean, disability in some cases is associated with some sort of deficiency. 
which is not actually true. So, I mean, what Nawaf and Veronica said, I, re I state this again, resonates with my own experiences, both as a person with a disability, as well as a humanitarian worker. Thank you so much, Michael, for very vividly illustrating the point that persons with disabilities are not just a statistic with important stories, including personal stories as well, which is, is I'm sure, always difficult to recount, uh, having experienced yourself. So thank you for sharing that. And also the statistics are important too, uh, saying that, you know, not including persons with a disability means leaving out one third of the population affected, that that's significant. And it's really a an invisible majority, really. So fast forwarding from that past experience to the last few years here, could you please talk about your role and what the ICRC is doing to respond better to the barriers that we've talked about today faced by persons with disabilities in armed conflict? Thank you, Lizzie. My role in the ICRC as the Disability Inclusion Advisor is to coordinate the organizational strategy on disability uh, inclusion. Inspired by many years of interventions in situations of conflict, uh, the ICRC has packaged lots of evidence, I mean, including the statistics that uh, we have just mentioned and other forms of evidence of exclusion of persons with disabilities. And therefore, when we ask ourselves what the ICRC is doing to better respond to the barriers that we've just mentioned a few minutes ago, and my colleagues have just mentioned, there are quite a number of interventions, and I will list uh, just a few. I will try to group these interventions both as external interventions as well as internal interventions within the organization of the, the ICRC. Now, externally, we, as an organization, are advocating, continuously advocating, of course, and networking and as well as promoting participation of all the parties, including persons with disabilities that have an interest one way or another related to conflict. Now, when we have this, we say that, of course, as an organization, we are aligned with uh, the international best practice uh, standards and laws. And this is the purpose of our advocacy and network. First of all, just to give an example, we are in constant discussions, considerations and awareness raising of the interrelationship between the Convention of the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, the CRPD, and the International Humanitarian Law, uh, IHL. I mean, these are the discussions that my colleagues and I always uh, propagate about this in a, few, in a few other minutes. Now, we are also pertinent to the Charter on the Inclusion of Persons with Disabilities because the ICRC externally is a signatory to the Charter on Inclusion of Persons with Disabilities. And here in Geneva, we are part of the group that uh, we call ourselves the group of friends on the Charter on Inclusion of Persons with Disabilities to promote the aspirations of uh, this uh, particular charter. 
Then on the same length, externally, of course, the ICRC is a member of the, the Interagency Standing Committee on the guidelines of, of inclusion of persons with disabilities. And under this, we have the disability reference group that we are part of. And of course, we have also made various other commitments, like for example, in the Global Disability Summit of 2018 and 2022, just last year, on persons with disabilities. Now, why am I saying this? I'm saying this because as an organization, we are holding ourselves accountable to all these commitments that I've just mentioned. Because as an organization, we are not an island on our own in issues, uh, disability, uh, disability inclusion. And therefore, this is important because continuously externally and also internally, we hold ourselves accountable to these particular commitments. Thank you, Michael. And what I'm clinging to about what you're saying is that all of these commitments, everything from the Charter on Inclusion to the ISC guidelines, is about holding ourselves accountable to these commitments. So in briefly, can you say, with regards to the ICRC's strategic orientation to disability inclusion, and keeping in mind the challenges that Nawaf and Veronica outlined earlier, can you tell us, frankly, what's worked so far and what really needs readjusting, in your opinion? Good question. First of all, the ICRC orientation, or say, to disability inclusion, I mean, especially when we talk about the strategic orientation, it has been a long journey for the ICRC because it didn't start yesterday, but started many, many years ago in the history of the ICRC, uh, perhaps not very prominent then. But of course, the current strategy on disability uh, brings it to more focus. Now, let me say very briefly that historically before the year 1979, and I'll tell you why I'm referring to the year 1979, the ICRC has been uh, offering assistance to persons affected, of course, by conflict, offering that assistance. Then in 1979, the ICRC put in place uh, what we call the Physical Rehabilitation Program, uh, the PRP. And the purpose of this program was and still is to rehabilitate victims of war. Now, this was a very important step in those early years to disability inclusion, albeit, albeit the fact that this particular intervention then was just based on the medical approach to disability inclusion at that particular time. So over the years, what has happened is that the IGSC has continued together with the movement at some point, like in, 19, in 2015, uh, we had the movement Disability Inclusion Framework 2015 to 2019. And then later, the ICRC, of course, had other commitments here and there, as I've said, of course, the charters and so on and so forth. But the breaking point on disability inclusion for the ICRC was in 2020, when in June, the ICRC was able to develop and ratify Vision 2030 on Disability. Vision 2030 on Disability is an organizational strategy that seeks to transform the way the ICRC addresses disability inclusion in situations of conflict. Now, this institutional strategy, Vision 2030 on Disability, has four pillars. The first pillar is focusing on disability inclusive programming. The second pillar focuses on inclusive physical rehabilitation program that I just mentioned that was started in 1979. The third pillar focuses on 
internal processes, you know, inclusive human resources. And the fourth pillar uh, focuses on IHL and disability inclusion. So that is how the, this particular strategy is conceptualized. And we are implementing this strategy in three phases. The first phase that ended between 2021 and 2022 last year, just for two years, was based basically on raising awareness as well as developing guidelines for the organization on disability inclusion. We are now in the second phase, 2023 to 2025. That is now we are seeking to influence practices and policy within the organization. And then, of course, the third phase, 2026 to 2030, uh, will be able to consolidate learnings and solidify all these policies that we have developed. Now, on the last part, we still have some challenges, uh, just to be honest. But we are cognizant of the fact that we are learning from these challenges and that the learning is continuous. First of all, the challenges is now putting these guidelines and these learnings from capacity building into practice. Yeah, because mm -hmm. we keep on saying that, I mean, some of our colleagues still see disability inclusion as in quote unquote new initiative. And therefore, mm -hmm. out of the workloads that our colleagues have, then, of course, they say that, OK, perhaps it is it is too much work. It's a very rich response and one that is really useful to know, Michael, um, because I don't think a lot of people really have access to a look under the hood of what we do at ICRC. So thank you for so eloquently outlining what we do and also for being honest for how we could do better. I'd like to actually take that part specifically back to the group, back to Nawaf and Veronica, and ultimately with a question about international humanitarian law, because what we are talking about today is the situation of persons with disabilities in the context of armed conflict. And of course, that's where international humanitarian law applies. So IHL, as you know, has rules governing armed conflicts and the protection of civilians, which includes, of course, persons with disabilities. The fundamental principles of IHL regulating the conduct of hostilities, which are notably distinction, proportionality, and precaution, remain important in the protection of persons with disabilities in armed conflict, including using a disability lens when analyzing and respecting these principles. So just for a few examples of what that actually means, this means that Parties to conflict have to avoid attacking hospitals and institutions that house and care for persons with disabilities. It means that combatants and fighters must distinguish between fighters and civilians and must not attack persons with disabilities for not understanding or obeying orders, which has been seen in past conflicts, unfortunately. And then the proportionality assessment of every attack must take persons with pre-existing disabilities into account, as well as considering the new physical and mental disabilities such attacks may cause. Military commanders must also consider that 15% of any given population in an area are persons with disabilities before ordering attacks. And that's the statistic, as you, Nawaf, and Michael both pointed out, fluctuates uh, with any given context. So with that in mind, my, my question is, 
How can we do better? How can humanitarian organizations like the ICRC, who are really the guardian of international humanitarian law, how can we better support organizations of persons with disabilities in boosting their own capacity on international humanitarian law and dialogue with the military? And I'd like to start with you, Nawaf, if I could. Thank you very much, Liz. Let me say first that in addition to the international humanitarian law, there is also Article 11 of the CRPD stated clearly the responsibility of state to deal with disability in this situation of crisis and conflicts. Now, if you look at the actual experience on the ground, now we have the recent crisis, which is Ukrainian. In this situation, if we look at the report that was produced by IDA and the EDF, Disability Forum, on the situation in, of the person with disability in Ukraine, if we add to this what happened after the earthquake in Turkey and Syria, and if you look at the report coming by Amnesty International, we come out not a good image of the implementation of the Article 11 and the international humanitarian law. Up to this point, it seems that humanitarian programs are not inclusive of persons with disabilities. That's why when they start, for example, from the Syrian conflict, when we had lots of refugees coming, one of the major problems was that where they were organizing camps for them, the camps were not accessible. Imagine a person with a physical disability using a wheelchair. He or she does not have access to a toilet. They do not have access to a good accommodation area and even not a place where they can move around. A disaster and still a disastrous situation. With a degree of minus four during the night in both Aleppo in Syria and Turkey, could not go to a shelter because the shelters were not accessible. Because the humanitarian support were mostly food and tents and clothes and covers, but nothing very important for a person with disability like wheelchair, cushion, and other stuff that are necessary for their everyday life. There is this gap that we have to work it out, and it ought to be done a priori. It should be organized, thought of a priori. If you introduce it to the system, everyone knows ahead of time what is to be done at any crisis that may erupt. So yes, to work out done, these uh, very important laws give us a right situation of crisis and war and conflict. We have to see how these are implemented practically on the ground. Thank you, Nawaf. And Veronica, do you have anything to add to that advice? Uh, thank you, Lizzie. The problem with Cameroon is we look at the kind of things that happens in Cameroon. We have policies that are well written on paper. Cameroon will say they have ratified the CRPD and policies that are promoting the rights of persons with disabilities, but they don't put it to practice. They don't put it to practice. And even if they need to do, they need to give feedback to the international community, if they have to follow up with them to know if they are really promoting them policies to favor persons with disability as it is needed. They will tell lies, give fake reports, and persons with disability do not know that they can do shadow reports and present it in the same place so that they will understand that this report is coming from persons with disability and it is them that have facts to justify mm -hmm. that they are being left out. Also, when there are opportunities because persons with disabilities have limited access to accessible information. The opportunities come first to the government, top ranking or government officials and offices in Cameroon 
so that they will be the one to disseminate it to communities of people in need. But these top-ranking officials choose to manage those opportunities and funding in their own way. And they, they, they create organizations because they want to make use of those opportunities. You see a delegate or a, a secretary or a minister or a, a senior divisional officer in a in the community will just suddenly have a community-based organization and he's implementing projects which were supposed to be channeled, consume opportunities that are channeled through the government to CBOs in the community. And this is because we do not have that capacity to directly access these opportunities. We also don't have enough information on the international humanitarian law, how it go about it, to meet, to access uh, support, to ensure that we advocate for the proper things to be done for us to benefit and our rights respected. So we, there is no information dissemination for us in Cameroon. And there is a lot of administrative bottlenecks that cause us to be limited and do not have information on how to even access it. Thank you, Veronica. And, you know, I would love to end on a positive note, but I actually prefer this because it leaves us with a list of things that need to happen next and a a real call to action of how to move forward. I'd like to thank you all for your time today. You know, on a personal note, when I was doing the background research on all three of you, I was so humbled by the work that all of you do. And this conversation has certainly left me with a feeling that will stay with me for a long time, how we need to actually do better uh, in the humanitarian sector. And I hope that our listeners share that feeling as well, coming away from this discussion. I want to thank you for your time today, for your energy and your patience with the conversation, and ultimately for the work that you've all been doing over the last few decades and in the decades to come. I really, truly thank you for your time here today. Thank you very much, Liz. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. It's my pleasure to be part of this conversation. If you enjoyed this episode of Humanity in War, be sure to check out the ICRC's Humanitarian Law and Policy blog at blogs.icrc.org slash lawandpolicy, a library of posts, all with audio reads on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify. Want to hear more ICRC podcasts? Be sure to check out our sister podcast, Intercross, straight from Washington, D.C. Here's a quick trailer of what you should be listening to. Somalia is currently witnessing the harshest drought in the recent past. The climate crisis in the African nation is now leading to major displacement and a humanitarian crisis. Winter has come to Afghanistan and with it skyrocketing need for aid to millions of desperate Afghans. Hundreds of thousands of people are rushing to flee Ukraine, pouring into train stations, pushing against checkpoints, and waiting hours. You've probably heard the headlines, but for the International Committee of the Red Cross, there's more to that story. Well, our message is always the same. Spare the civilians from violence uh, and conflict and respect the very basic rules of international humanitarian law. I'm Dominique Maria Benessi, and this is Intercross, a podcast that offers a window into the work of the ICRC, 
and shares the stories of those most affected by war and violence. Along the way, we'll answer your big questions, like how do you get an aid convoy into a conflict zone, or reunify families separated by violence, or convince parties to a conflict to follow the rules of war. Follow us on Twitter at ICRC underscore DC, and join us anywhere you get your podcasts.